Uh, we came in yesterday, or two days ago, for Rusty's memorial, and yesterday's service was just beautiful. So I uh, knew Rusty all the way back when. He's the one that taught me how to use a skill saw, and I'm going to miss that man. He was a, he was a good man. Um, just want to give you guys a little update before we get in the Word. Just want to say thank you to all of you who have been praying and supporting us. About five months into planning a church in Bend, Oregon, and since 2020, they kind of reforecasted the whole population growth, and they're estimating half a million people living in the Bend metro area by 2050. And so as you can imagine, this place is just blowing up. There's tons of new communities, new neighborhoods, new people, severely underchurched, and even the churches that are there are not preaching the Word of God, not very many of them. And so uh, we are hoping that we are one of many church plants in that area to reach people for the Lord Jesus Christ. So we want to thank you guys so much for your prayers. It's been good. Living Waters Fellowship is what we're going by right now, and uh, you can just keep us in your prayers. There's definitely a battle going on over there. So um, praise the Lord. Well, hey, let's, uh, let's get in the Word. If you guys will turn in your Bibles to two places. First, please find your place in the book of Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. And once you find your place there, then turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Today we're going to be looking at an extraordinary theological truth about our Lord Jesus Christ and see if we can come to understand just a little bit more about this great love with which he's loved us. Sneak preview, we're going to see this Jesus, Hebrews 1.3, who is the glory of God's glory, become the sin of man's depravity. What a contrast. We're going to start in Isaiah 53. If you guys would, please stand with me as we read the word of God together. Isaiah 53. Verse 1. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before them, or before him, as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrow. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. Amen. For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, 
And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Please turn over with me now to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse 14. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 5, 14. Paul writes, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And here's the verse I want to focus in on this morning. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Wow. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We do continue to pray for Pastor Ben and Shandy and the family that you would heal their bodies and anyone else, Lord, this morning that is sick, that you would touch them. Those who may be listening online now or later, that you would speak to their hearts, Lord, and allow them, Lord, to be with us in spirit as we study your word. I do pray that you'd help me, Lord, to speak with clarity so that your word would be clear, that I would get out of the way and allow you to minister to our hearts and Holy Spirit, we trust that you will give us the application for your word this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The title of the message this morning is The Great Exchange. The Great Exchange. The radiance of God's glory. This is Jesus according to the book of Hebrews. He is the glory of God's glory. Hebrews 1.3 became the sin of man's depravity. 2 Corinthians 5.21 to redeem us according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 1.3 That is our Lord Jesus Christ. There isn't a story like it in history. It was a beautiful Saturday morning on October 17th when 17 Christian missionaries, including five children, one being a child only 10 months old and another only three years old, They piled into a passenger van just outside of Port-au-Prince, Haiti. The missionaries were on their way home after completing a visit with the orphanage that they were visiting. About 15 uh, minutes into the drive up ahead was a land cruiser ambulance, which was blocking half of the road. Because of the political unrest, the missionaries simply thought that it was the national police and just thought they needed to pass by around them. But as they approached the ambulance, one of the missionaries discerned that something was very wrong about the whole situation. It didn't feel right. And he suddenly realized this was not a police setup, nor was this really an ambulance. This was a Haitian gang. Little did they know this was the most notoriously dangerous gang on the Caribbean island, known as the 400 Mawazo, known for shameless killings and ransom kidnappings which they abduct groups of people, they hold them hostage until the demands are met. 
So the driver of the van, seeing and recognizing what's going on, he tells the driver, no, no, stop. Turn around, turn around. And they make a U-turn as quickly as possible back towards the orphanage. Now at first they thought that they were going to be safe, but before you know it, a truck out of nowhere started passing them on the left and the back of the truck was full of men with assault rifles. According to the missionaries, when this happened, they tried to act normal, as you can try to imagine what you would do in that moment. Maybe they would just pass through. Maybe they were after somebody else. But unfortunately, that wasn't true. They cut in front of their van, almost T-bowed them. A man pulled the driver out of the front seat, and the 17 missionaries were now looking down the barrel of guns and being driven to an unknown, uh, unknown location where they would be held hostage for who knows how long. The ambulance that had blocked them earlier was now pulling up behind them, and they were all piling in and being driven to a location. They pulled into this remote area. Several houses were there. Shacks really wasn't really houses. And they put these 17 missionaries in two rooms, each about 10 by 12, very small, with only a few mattresses and a few pieces of cardboard for sleeping. Then closed the doors and locked them in. And it was at this point that the missionaries knew who they were kidnapped by, and it was uncertain what would happen next. The missionaries began to sing and pray to the Lord together. They sang the songs of the lyrics, the angel of the Lord encampeth around about them that fear him and delivers them. That evening, the leader of the gang contacted their ministry and said, I'm demanding, uh, demanding $17 million, $1 million per person ransom. I will soon be killing them if we don't get the money. What an exchange. It felt like an eternity, but over a month had already passed by. The hostages had not gotten out of that room yet, were eating bread and drinking water. During this time, the missionaries had refocused their attention on the mission field. If they're going to be missionaries in Haiti, they thought, hey, we're probably going to die doing this, so let's just start preaching the gospel. Let's just start doing morning devotions, and let's pray, and let's do everything that we would do, because who knows what the Lord can do in this place? And so that's exactly what they did. According to one of the missionaries, and I quote, many, many hours were spent praying and witnessing to our captors. I think the guards heard the gospel being preached for 63 days straight. <laughs> Little do these guards know how much of a blessing that is to them. Well, as their health declined, an answer to prayer came their way. On November 21st, an anonymous person paid a ransom of $3 million which the gang decided to release only five of them, leaving 12 left, and still all of the children were held hostage. At the two-month mark, the children were experiencing fevers and sickness, and the missionaries began to feel more and more desperate to get out and believing that they had done everything that they could, and they were looking for a sign to escape. So through much prayer, they did that, and on December 15th, they believed they received that sign from the Lord to get out. They believed God had blinded their eyes, blinded the eyes of the guard who had been guarding the door. He walked away with the door unlocked. So they packed a bunch of water and they just took off out into the woods, not knowing where they were going. But they felt like the Lord was leading them. And as you would know it, they arrived exactly at the Coast Guard area where they were kept safely and were saved. Every single one of the 17 missionaries survived, including the missionary. And they were soon reignited. Uh, reunited with their family. Now, perhaps most significant about the story and everything is that every single one of those missionaries publicly chose to forgive their captors. I don't know if you remember this story. This is only a couple years old. And one of the missionaries said, and I quote, the true hostages are those who took us. Our prayer is our hostage takers be transformed 
We choose to extend forgiveness to them. We would love for them to become brothers in Christ. I love that. What an incredible statement, though. The true hostages are those who took us. Hostages to what? Hostages to Satan. Hostages to sin and to death. These captors were the ones who truly needed a ransom. And of course, it's not about a man exchanging a captive with money, but it's God exchanging his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in order to ransom the souls of mankind. It's God saving an evil man from his own doings, his own sin and shame and hell-bound destiny where he is going to face the wrath of God for eternity without the proper ransom. It's only through the precious blood of Jesus. This is what many great men of God throughout church history call the great exchange. Or as Hudson Taylor, the famous missionary to China, calls the exchange life. My sin for his righteousness. My sin for his righteousness. Jim Elliott once said, he is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And of course, we know that Jim Elliott died on the mission. So this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, I'd like to draw our attention to two, or excuse me, three different points as it pertains to the great exchange. First, we're going to see the targets of this exchange, clearly laid out for. Second, there's a transaction that takes place. And then third, a transformation. The targets, the transaction, and the transformation all compiled theologically for us in one verse. Let's begin by looking at the targets of this exchange. Who's involved? Verse 21, for he, that is God, made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. It's personal. Two targets of the great exchange are clearly laid out. First, it is he who knew no sin, which is the God-man, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the second target is us, the Adamic man. Sons of Adam, daughters of Eve, inheritors of sin, descendants of the curse of death, successors of perdition. That is us. That is humankind. It's these two subjects which are the targets of God's great exchange, the greatest story on the planet, each taking the place of the other in matters of righteous and unrighteous. Let's start with the first target, he who knew no sin. Christ being God incarnated, conceived in the womb of Mary, by the power of the Holy Spirit, born into the world, experienced the world, yes, but he knew no sin. He was God. As we read in Isaiah 53, verse 9, he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Now we have to get this order right. A man did not become God. God became a man. Huge difference, isn't there? We must also understand that Jesus, in becoming incarnated as a man, did not forfeit his nature as God. Again, Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of God's nature. Thus, he knew no sin. He knew no sin. That Greek word is gnosko. It means experiential knowledge, knowledge that you get through experiencing something. Christ certainly knew of sin. He saw it in others, and he felt the effects of sin in the world. He saw his friend Lazarus' death, which led him to weep. He saw the Pharisees, their stubbornness, which led him to outrage. He saw the lost souls. He saw the hungry and the poor, which led him to compassion. So he, he certainly felt the outward effects of sin. He understood it. 
He also knew it in himself. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He felt those effects of what the broken world was. Even more, Jesus experienced the temptations of sin. In the wilderness, the devil tempted Jesus just as he had tempted Eve for 40 days and 40 nights, relentlessly slinging and throwing his best darts at Christ, only to be overcome, Satan to be overcome by the power of his will and the word of God. This is why the author of Hebrews tells us that Christ can sympathize with our weakness because he was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin, without sin. But that's the key. Well, he knew of sin, he did not experience sin. You have to understand this. He is the sinless son of God. He is without it. He is morally perfect and righteous. It's not because he tried harder than we. He was altogether different than we are in that respect. He knew no sin because he was not the son of Adam. He was the son of the father. He was the son of God. He did not inherit the sinful nature because he was God. He is God. He is not a descendant of the curse, but the only begotten son of God. Thus he knew no sin. And because of this, think about it. Christ did not inherit sin and death like we have, which means his death was not inevitable. He chose to lay it down for himself. Isn't this what Jesus said? John chapter 10, he says, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. Talk about authority. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it again. These are the words of a man who does not have to die but chooses to die instead. As the author of Hebrews eloquently puts it, our high priest Jesus was fitting for us who was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. But he died, he sacrificed himself once for all when he offered himself up. He offered himself up. The Romans had nothing to do with it. The Jews had nothing to do with it, maybe on the outside scope of it all. But Jesus laid down his own life of himself. Clearly Christ is separate from sinners. He is like us as a man, but he is altogether unlike us as God. He knew no sin. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. You know that Christ was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. There is no sin. Now, compare the sinless Christ with us. <laughs> it is laughable, isn't it? The second target of the great exchange found here in 2 Corinthians 5.21. We are not he who knew no sin. We are he who knows sin very well each and every day. Lord, I need thee, oh, I need thee every hour. Forget every hour, every second, I need thee. We know sin very well. You cannot find a starker contrast in humanity than by comparing the sinless son of God with every other son of Adam and daughter of Eve. We're lacking innocence, we're lacking righteousness and holiness. We change day by day, but Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all show this stark contrast between the sinless Jesus and the sinfulness of man. In Luke chapter five, I think we, we see this contrast play out almost poetically between Peter and Jesus. Peter finally realizing he's before a man he's never seen before. He's never seen a man like Jesus. Jesus was teaching the word of God on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. If you can imagine being there, you can hear the waves, you can hear the boats, you can hear the fishermen out in the lake yelling at each other, maybe cursing. Peter and Andrew, James and John, two sets of brothers are prepping their boats. 
And Jesus asked Peter almost randomly because he's getting kind of pushed into the water by the people if he could sit into his boat and finish teaching the crowds. Peter agrees to allow the teacher to sit in his boat. and to, They push out from land. Jesus finishes his sermon about the kingdom of God. And then he tells Peter, hey, Peter, cast your nets out. Peter almost sarcastically and rebelliously says, Lord, I don't think you know what you're talking about. We've toiled all night. We know what we're doing. This is our business. You're a rabbi. Do your thing. But nonetheless, at your word, we'll do what you say. And then something happens that would change Peter's life forever. Remember? (laughs) The net goes into the water, and it's as if Jesus, the creator of the heavens and the earth, he calls every fish from the Sea of Galilee like a magnet to that net. And those nets begin breaking from all of the catch that night and that day. It was a miracle only the Lord could perform in an instant. Only God himself, from a catchless night to a catch in an instant that morning. From toiling and laboring all night for nothing to casting out once at the word of Jesus and the nets are full. That kind of describes humanity. We toil and we labor all night, all day, all life for nothing without the Lord. But as soon as we obey his command, he brings it all in and his presence or pleasures. Now what was Peter's response to this? Peter was humbled and he quickly recognized he was standing before somebody who was altogether different than him. They may have been the same age. They may have been the same build. They may have bought the sandals from the same shop, wearing the same robes, but they were different men. He was standing before the sinless son of God. And this is why Peter says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You only say that to someone you believe. Peter recognized who he was, and he recognized who the Lord was, and it changed his life. And from that moment forward, Peter followed Jesus happily. That's how different we are from the Lord. If we had all had that same experience with the fish, we are sinners, evil, we're corrupt, we're depraved. It's at the core of who we are. We cannot change ourselves. We live in a culture that thinks goodness is a relative thing. We're so sick. Not to mention, not, forget the works that we do. Imagine all the stuff that's going on between our ears each and every single day apart from the Lord. Paul says, I know that in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Nothing. Romans chapter 7, verse 18. King David said, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. One of my favorite quotes of all time is by Charles Spurgeon. He says, if any man thinks bad of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. That's so true, isn't it? And that's when we come to understand when we are completely depraved in ourselves, that we're not good. And when we come to understand the complete and awesome righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can see just how incredible the gospel message is. The gospel is not about a needy God who came down to earth to save mankind because he just couldn't handle heaven without us. And if he didn't have us, he was somehow going to be weeping for all of eternity. And so out of his own pity and his own need for fellowship, he came after us. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that he didn't need us. He is our maker. He is our master, our creator. He could have done the flood of Noah over and over and over again and left us to suffer in hell. Instead, because of the great love with which he loved us, he came as a man to sacrifice himself. That is our God freely gave himself for us. That's the exchange. Unfortunately, the majority of churches in America do not preach that gospel. So we've got to see the contrast between these two targets. 
It's personal. We need to make it personal. He who knew no sin to us who know sin very well, until we see this contrast, we'll never appreciate the gospel for what it is. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Understanding this has the power to change your life, not just the day you give your life to Jesus. Each and every day you wake up and you go, Lord, you demonstrated your love toward me and that while I was still a sinner, you died for me. You gave yourself. I wake up each and every day knowing that this earth is not my home, that I'm going to arrive one day. I'm going to get to see Rusty again. I'm going to get to be with those whom I love in the Lord because of your precious blood, because of your salvation. But if somehow we come to believe otherwise, somehow we're, we think we're actually good in ourselves, we diminish the gospel. This was the Galatian problem. The Galatian church thought that they needed to start earning their way into the kingdom as it were. They were doing the works of the law. And Paul says, I marvel that you guys are turning from him so quickly to a different gospel, completely different gospel. You need to go back to the grace of God. When we see the great righteousness of God, we can do nothing but worship in adoration of what Jesus has done for us. And my question for you this morning is, have you forgotten about this? Have you forgotten? Have you been deceived in yourself? Have you deluded the gospel message when you wake up in the morning, thinking, I gotta somehow earn God's favor, not realizing it's already been paid for. You can't earn it. That's the whole reason why Jesus died. If you could earn it, then Jesus died in vain. Do not forget. Do not forsake the purity of the gospel message. That he is good. You and I are not. That's why this needed to happen. That's why Jesus made it happen, the great exchange. This brings us to our second point this morning. We've seen the targets, Christ and ourselves, but secondly, there's also a clear transaction that takes place. For God made Christ to be sin for us. That's the transaction. Jesus himself. God made the sinless Christ be sin on our behalf. Whatever could Paul mean that God made Christ be sin for? Christ was not made by God in the sense of being forced. There's no disunity between God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The word made here can also mean caused. It may be better understood by what we read earlier in verse 19, if you go back up there for a second. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting, not reckoning, not considering their trespasses to how is it that God would not count our sin against us? God counted Christ to be our sin. This is a legal transaction of exchange in the heavens. When you gave your life to Jesus, you didn't naturally become a holy person who no longer sinned anymore, but to your account, you were considered righteous in God's eyes. And then one day when you rise again, you will in fact be holy and innocent and sinless as a woman. But Jesus absorbed all of our sin on the cross as we read in Isaiah 53. This is why Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did God forsake him? God didn't see Christ and he saw us. It was us that should have been forsaken. On the cross, God had imputed, God transferred, God transacted all of our sin onto the body of the sinless son of God. He took our place he paid our ransom. He paid the captor so that we could no longer be hostage to sin and to death and the mess that we live in. God was justly viewing Christ as our sin. He was considered our sin. That is how he became our sin. And God forsook him in that moment. Peter calls this in 1 Peter 3.18, the just for the unjust. That's the exchange. 
the transaction. Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God and praise the Lord. And the prophet Isaiah, he puts this transaction of redemption on full display for us, even telling us that God was pleased to crush Christ on the cross for our sakes. That is love. He was pleased. Listen again to the eloquence of the prophet Isaiah. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes, we are healed. We have turned our own way. Like sheep, we have gone astray. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He's put his soul to grief. He's made his soul an offering for sin. But by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify me. Christ shall bear their iniquity. He bore it all. It's upon this very transaction that every single New Testament doctrine, every single verse you read in the New Testament is built on this doctrine, that Christ took our punishment upon himself. You know, I grew up in the church believing Jesus died on the cross, but it took me a long time to understand that he died on the cross for my sin. There's a huge difference there. I think the world knows Jesus died on the cross. That almost doesn't mean anything. They need to know that Jesus died for their sin. He took their place. Jesus said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 1 Peter 2.21 For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. uh, But he committed himself to him who judges righteously. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were. Romans chapter five, verses uh, six through eight. For when we were still without strength, in due time, that is at the perfect time, Christ died for not the righteous, not the godly, but for who? For the ungodly, that is us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Should I still go on? I will. Galatians 3.13. Christ who gave himself for our sins so that we might, uh, he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God our Father. Galatians 3, 13 and Galatians 1, 4, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Titus chapter 2, verse 13, he gave himself for us that he might redeem us. Hebrews 9, 26, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself over and over and over again in the scriptures. It's this transaction of Christ for us. Christ for us. This should never get old, church, never. This is not something you're just saved by. This is something we live by. Jesus for us. This transaction is what saves us from the wrath of God, from the penalty that is due to us, that we are the ones who should have been smitten by God and afflicted. We should have been the ones crushed under the mighty hand of God, because of our sin, we should be the ones to bear our own sin, but we won't because Christ took our You can't miss this. This is a doctrinal, positional statement in Scripture. This is a legal transaction that has already taken place in the heavens. There's nothing that you can do to change this whatsoever. You are free. 
You're no longer a sinner in the eyes of God. God does not see you in your sin. He sees Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's it. Your sins are removed. You're now an adopted child of God, a co-heir with Christ, even the bride of Christ, the beloved of God. Does that make you rejoice this morning? David's words are fulfilled. Psalms 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. It's on this truth, this transaction, that we are forgiven, that we are redeemed, and that we are saved because of Jesus, not because of who we are. We don't come to church to worship to feel better. We come to church to be in his presence, to worship him for, what he, or for who he is and what he's done for us. So that even when we do commit sin in this new life that we have in Christ, God will faithfully and justly forgive us. 1 John 1.9, when we confess our sins, he is faithful. And a lot of people miss this next part. He is faithful and just. How is he just to forgive us? Because he's old. He would be unjust now to not forgive us because the penalty has already been paid. Understand that. He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So with this transaction, naturally then comes our third and final point, which is transformation. It's not just that Christ took our sin. It goes a lot further than this. We also took Christ's righteousness, Paul says. It's not just a one-way street. It's a exchange of righteousness. It's what scholars call double imputation. God did not impute our sins to us. He imputed Christ's righteousness. For what does he say at the end of verse 21? That we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's not that Christ neutralized us and simply made us bystanders now. The transaction goes much further than this. It includes transformation. Christ became our sin so we could become God's righteousness. Paul said earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, but of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Just as God saw Christ as our sin on the cross and forsook him because of it, now God sees you as Christ in his righteousness and has brought you near because of it. Ephesians 2, 13, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off, he is brought near by the blood of the cross, for he himself is our peace. Romans 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory. Romans chapter 4, verse 24, Righteousness shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who was raised up from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Hear that again in Romans 4. Righteousness shall be imputed, shall be directed, transacted, transformed in your life to those who believe in him. We are considered righteous because of Jesus and Jesus alone. That means it doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter if you wake up one morning and you just blow it. You are still the righteousness of God in him because of Jesus. When a man anchors his trust in the Lord, the Son of God, there is no more work. There's no more striving. There's no more worrying or labor that has to be done to please the Lord. He is fully pleased in us because of Jesus. There's no longer any sin that is held against us. This great exchange has been finalized on the cross. It is Satan's great ploy to get you to think it's not finished. But it is finished. Your sins are withdrawn and Christ's righteousness is deposited 
it's done. Nothing else has to be done. No wonder Paul could say, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you feel condemned this morning, that is not from the Lord. Come back to him. Confess your sins. He's faithful and just. You are his righteousness. No wonder Paul could say, and close up Romans chapter eight, he says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And we often forget to include ourselves in that. You can't even be against you. You can't even be against you. If God is for you, who are you to argue with the Lord? He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? All things. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God and also makes intercession. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. That is the great exchange. And we live in it, church. This is not a theory. This is God's truth for you and I this morning that we are called to never forget ever the radiance of God's glory becoming the sin of man's depravity that we might live forever with him, amen? The targets of the exchange, he who knew no sin for our sakes, the transaction that he became sin and then finally the transformation that we would become his righteousness. One of my favorite hymns is the chorus. I'm sure you all know it. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. I thank you, Lord, for Calvary Chapel Centralia. Thank you that we get to gather every Sunday as the church has been doing since you rose again and being reminded of these great, outstanding truths, Lord, that we must accept by faith. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who may have forgotten who they are in you. Lord, maybe they're bound up by sin this morning. Lord, I pray for them that they would be set free. Lord, to be able to walk in your grace. Lord, I pray for those who just wake up every morning feeling guilty. Maybe they just feel like they're not enough. And of course, Lord, we're not apart from you. But Lord, because of your cross, I pray that they would find their boldness to enter the throne room grace, to find help in time of need. And Lord, that we as a church in these dark times would shine as lights based upon this truth, that we would not walk in self-righteousness, but in Christ's righteousness. We'd bring many others to know this great truth and that they would also, Lord, come to experience this exchange life. We love you so much, Jesus, and we praise your holy name. Amen.